3: With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from fifty to five hundred dollars, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations.
4: Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Mr. Joseph! Excuse me, Mr. Joseph? What is it? I... Mrs. Mary was having me clear some space in the coal cellar for... for the new tenant tomorrow and... Spit it
2: out! I found it... a bone, I think, sir. Animals get trapped down there often. Just dispose of it. It looks... human, sir. (laughs) Human? Alright, run along. You're not getting paid to play games.
1: Please, sir. If you just come with me, I promise.
2: Albert! This boy thinks he saw a ghost. Go pacify his imagination. It's interrupting his work.
5: Where? Right over there! Heavens! Go get Joseph! Run! Tell him I sent you!
4: This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Parcast Original. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
6: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case.
4: Well, you can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, to stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar.
6: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
4: And if you enjoy today's episode, well, the best way to help us is to leave a
6: five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our first episode on a murder that occurred in the fall of 1877 at a boarding house at 4 Euston Square, London. This week we'll cover the discovery of an unidentified body, the national media scandal that ensued, and the grueling investigation. Next week. We'll cover the resulting murder trial that shocked England to its core. In
4: 1879, London's population was nearing 4 million people. Industry was booming, immigrants were pouring in, and the city's boarding houses were increasing in popularity. And not just for traveling salesmen and con artists. As the city grew, boarding houses catered to the growing middle class and tried to destigmatize temporary housing. These new homes prided themselves on offering affordable comfort with a sense of propriety, something previously unknown to Londoners.
6: Four Euston Square was one of these new boarding houses. With its comfortable accommodations, rich design, and warm hospitality, it was the perfect destination for the flourishing bourgeoisie, the writers, artists, and skilled craftsmen flocking to London.
4: Then, in May of 1879, the body of an elderly woman was found buried in the coal cellar of 4 Euston Square, just feet below where its tenants
6: slept. By May 1879, Mary and Ziverine Bastendorf had operated for Euston Square for three years. They lived on the topmost floor with their four young children and rented out the rooms below to tenants who came and went as they pleased.
4: Mary Bastendorf handled the operations of the house while tending to her family. After losing three of her children earlier in her life, she became a particularly attentive mother to the four that were alive and well.
6: Mary's husband, Zivereen Bastendorf, had immigrated to London from Luxembourg. Along with his brothers, he ran a successful furniture business out of a workshop in their backyard.
4: When the couple purchased for Euston Square in 1876, their neighbors feared the impact that a boarding house might have on their neighborhood. However, the success of Zeverine’s craft and Mary's operation
6: quickly earned the respect of their watchful neighbors. On the morning of May 9, 1879, things appeared to be business as usual for Mary and Zeverine Bastendorf. The weather was wet and cold. Mary and her maid, Sarah Carpenter, were preparing for a new tenant, Mr. Brooks. Brooks was set to take the largest and most expensive room in the house.
3: Sarah, you fetched the milk and bread? Yes, ma'am. Good. Mr. Brooks is paying for Spotless, so I don't want to see any corners cut. Is the errand boy here yet? He needs to come clear some space in the cellar for the coal. I believe the boy
0: just arrived, ma'am.
4: The coal cellar measured just 5 feet high and 10 feet wide, lit only by the sunlight from a single manhole above.
6: As the errand boy, William Stroman, crawled inside the cellar, nothing seemed unusual. Heaps of coal were piled high, bits of trash strewn about. But as he made space in the cellar for the arrival of new coal, his blood ran cold.
4: William unearthed what looked like a human leg, Badly decayed, with only scraps of skin clinging on, he ran to the workshop behind for Euston Square to alert one of the workers in the workshop, Joseph Savage.
6: Joseph didn't believe the boy. He sent another worker instead of going himself. But the worker soon came back with a report of his own. The limb was, in fact, human. And it was much more than a leg. It was the body of an older woman. She was almost unidentifiable, and pieces of her corpse crumbled at human touch.
4: The body's limbs were detached, and a thin rope was wrapped twice around its neck.
6: The body had decayed so severely, it had actually lost any residual odors. Even still, it was a common belief at the time that inhaling the fumes of the dead could be lethal. So Joseph Savage took action. Should we call the police?
2: No! Ask Mary for some chloride of lime. We need to spread it everywhere to
6: kill the odor. But now! The chloride of lime was retrieved and Joseph spread it around the room, taking great care not to disturb the body or to alert anyone in the residence.
4: A body in the cellar wasn't exactly good for business, but business couldn't just come to a halt.
3: Lord, what is that now? Looks like the coal man, ma'am. Well, he isn't coming in. He can't. Not now. What do I tell him? You tell him that the cellar isn't ready for him.
0: And don't go acting strange. Hello?
1: I've got a delivery of coal for you. I just need access to the cellar.
0: You can't have access, sir. Um, the cellar isn't quite ready for you.
1: What do you mean? I got a ticket. See?
0: Yes, that's quite right. You're not wrong. It's just... Not ready yet.
1: Well, I'm sorry about that, but I don't get paid by the hour. So if you'll excuse me. I told
0: you, it's not ready.
1: Well, ready or
6: not. Despite her protests, the delivery man pushed past the maid and barged into the cellar where he saw Joseph, Albert and William standing over a decaying corpse. The delivery man ran out of the house and down the street in search of a police officer. It wasn't long before he found police inspector Isaac Dowling on patrol and asked for help. Inspector
4: Dowling followed the coal delivery man to the crime scene. Soon after, Dr. Davis, a medical examiner who happened to live at 1 Euston Square, joined Inspector Dowling in the cellar.
6: At first glance, Dr. Davis thought the body might have been burnt, but it was too dark to definitively say. He ordered it moved to St. Pancras Mortuary for a proper examination.
4: As he made the order, an alert came from Scotland Yard. The body was to remain in its place until a senior inspector came to the scene and could assess the situation. They put Inspector Charles Hagen, a seasoned detective who'd helped form Scotland Yard's Criminal Investigation Department, on the case.
6: Hours later, Inspector Hagen finally arrived in the cellar. The body remained untouched, but Hagen was alone. Joseph, William, Albert, Dowling, and Davis had all left.
4: Like the policeman before him, Hagen noted the body's detached limbs. He also noted the few auburn ringlets attached to the skull, the tattered remains of a black silk dress, a black circular cloak lined with silk and ribbons, a quilted silk petticoat, a large quantity of black lace, and a golden brooch with white and red stones.
5: What's your report, Hagen? Well, sir, the victim's identity is unknown to anyone in the residence. Is there a clear motive? That's the thing. Experience says that greed is the greatest killer of all, but the valuables were left behind. She had wealth. It would appear so, but maybe the killer was after something else? You're sure she was killed? A woman of means doesn't just wander into a coal cellar by herself. But the strangest thing was what was missing. What? One of her feet.
4: The discovery of the body below 4 Euston Square was just the beginning of the
6: mysteries. Coming up, Dr. Davis's examination reveals new information, and Inspector Hagen presses residents of 4 Euston Square for answers.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all.
4: Now, back to the story.
6: On the morning of May 9th, 1879, the body of an unknown woman was discovered in the coal cellar of 4 Euston Square, a boarding house in London.
4: On the evening of May 9th, the victim's body was taken to St. Pancras Mortuary for examination. Hagen went to the mortuary to find some answers.
1: Anything, doctor? Well, there are no clear marks of violence on the skull. But there are small patches of flesh underneath the rope. Signs of pressure. It might be a sign of hanging oneself. But that does not explain... How her body found its way into the cellar. Precisely. Now, she's lost the majority of her teeth. But from those that remain, and the curve in her spine, I estimate that she was between 55 and 60 years old. Can you tell how long her body was down there? It's difficult to say. The brain is semi-fluid and the eyes and nose have corroded. Depending on any abetment by rats, I'd say it could have been down there several months or several years. Mm, Doesn't exactly narrow down the suspects.
6: With little to go on, Inspector Hagen started his investigation with the closest suspects. The owners of the boarding house, Mary and Zivereen Bastendorf. Both appeared mystified by the appearance of the body. I know nothing of the woman.
2: I only make furniture. You acquired the property in 1876, and prior to that, it sat empty? That's correct. I have a theory, though, of what might have happened. Please. She may have been drunk. One night, some time ago, the gate had not been locked, and a drunk woman wandered in. Maybe she was someone like that. Is the gate often unlocked? Well, no. But there has been a precedent.
5: I'm not ruling anything out at the moment. Do you mind if I take a look around? Not at all.
6: Inspector Hagen examined every room in the house, every cupboard, drawer, closet, and trunk, but found nothing that looked out of place. Until...
5: Where does this door lead to, Mr. Bastendorf? Oh, up to the
2: attic. Do you mind letting me in? I don't have the key. Oh, it's open. Just push hard. I'll be out back if you need anything else.
6: But the door was bolted shut. zeverine had lied to him. Hagen grew suspicious.
4: He forced his way in, but found himself in an unremarkable room, save for a small wicker tray that carried a host of miscellaneous trinkets, including an eyeglass, that appeared
6: out of place. The inspector sent the tray and its items to the police station for further examination and hurried off to question some of the men who worked in zeverine's workshop. No new information was gained from the questioning, though. The men all appeared to be operating under a status quo that raised no suspicion.
4: Outside of 4 Euston Square, however, the status quo was badly shaken. Crowds of people stood outside the house to try and glimpse the horrors they imagined were happening inside.
0: Who knew we had something so sinister under our very noses? I did. A house like that? inviting whatever filth can afford a night, I said it the second they moved in, and now look.
6: The story of the body found in the cellar rattled the city to its core. Not because a murder had occurred, murder wasn't unusual, but because of the victim's status.
4: The idea that a woman of means could vanish for years, get murdered, and reappear with nobody to identify her? terrified Londoners. The notorious Jack the Ripper murders wouldn't happen for almost a decade, so this case was an introduction for the upper class to what was now possible, a mirror held up to human nature. Nobody felt safe, and because of that fear, the public's hunger to know everything they could about the case was insatiable.
6: So, when the local papers announced that the body would be put on display... People showed up in droves. The police were hoping that someone might be able to identify the body.
4: An open viewing of an unidentified body was not unusual for the time, but the police were not prepared for the crowds. By day two, the queues were so long that officials were forced to question every person who showed up to determine whether their motivations were honest or voyeuristic. There was no time to waste. There was a killer on the loose.
6: As the proceedings continued, Mary and Zivereen Bastendorf maintained a polite and patient demeanor. So investigators began to expand their search. They tracked down the previous owner of 4 Euston Square, a man named Mr. Milnes.
4: Mr. Milnes was a sculptor and artist who had left 4 Euston Square in 1875. He had also built the workshop in the backyard that was now home to Zivereen's furniture business
6: the prevailing belief in 1879 was that bohemian artists led lives of depravity and the fact that milnes often took women into his studio to use his models made him a surefire suspect
4: but after a day of questioning milnes appeared to have nothing to hide not only was he cooperative with the police but he was still openly practicing his art not to mention The body of the woman in the cellar was not the type he'd have chosen to be his model. The police crossed him off their list. It was decided that the death either occurred under the occupancy of the Bastendorfs or during the year when the property sat empty.
6: The press coverage of the case brought news of the murder to a middle-aged couple in Biddeford, North Devon, some 200 miles away. The couple believed the victim might be their 24-year-old daughter, Hannah Dobbs.
4: William and Susan Dobbs had not seen their daughter in six months. The last they knew, Hannah was living in London and working as a maid.
6: Hannah's description seemed to match. She had a fair complexion, wore her hair in curls, and was missing a front tooth. The last known address she was working for? 4 Euston Square. Assuming it wasn't a coincidence, the devastated couple contacted Scotland Yard.
5: I'm sorry to hear that your daughter is missing. Was Hannah in the habit of visiting you at home?
3: Semi-frequently. In December, she brought with her two small children, which weren't hers, and a new husband?
4: It was a surprise to us.
5: She never told us she was married. Did she mention her husband's name?
3: Mr. Bastendorf. We weren't worried when we didn't hear from her at first. She told us that she would be traveling to Germany to visit her husband's brother, a uh, Dr. Bastendorf. We assumed she just got caught up in her travels.
4: We started to get concerned when we received a letter postmarked from an address in Euston Square. It was from a man asking what he should do with Hannah's things now that she had gone away. She apparently left some things in a box with him.
3: I assumed that gone away meant to Germany, so I I wrote back telling them to keep them safe for her return. It wasn't until we saw the papers that that we even considered.
6: (laughs) Information about Hannah Dobbs hit the papers. With it came rumors of Hannah Dobbs' past, theft and sexual promiscuity, as well as a pseudonym she might have operated under, Hannah Hazard.
4: Despite the body's suggested age, which had a substantial margin of error due to the amount of decay, the timeline, physical description, youthful clothes, and circumstance all seemed to match up. Hannah Dobbs was the most likely candidate for the body found in the cellar of 4 Euston Square, until a telegram arrived at Scotland Yard.
1: Inspector Hagen? We received some news about Hannah Dobbs' whereabouts. You're saying she's alive? Very much, sir. She's here in London. She's in prison. What for? Petty crime.
6: As it turned out, Hannah Dobbs' disappearance was coincidental. She wasn't the victim at all. She had only failed to contact her parents because she was afraid of what they might think of her crimes. It was a dead end.
4: Hagen was frustrated by the lack of progress. Someone at 4 Euston Square must have known something...
6: He was hoping to get some answers at the upcoming inquest, a judicial inquiry to determine the cause of death, which, in this case, took the form of a trial by jury. The jury would be comprised of local businessmen, and the trial would be held at St. Pancras Coroner's Court.
4: The first witness to take the stand was William Strowman, the errand boy who first found the body. He explained in detail the discovery. Then Joseph Savage took the stand. He stressed that he had not contaminated the body with chloride of lime. He made sure to only spread around it.
6: His testimony was brief, but appeared to be honest. Then, Ziverine Bastendorf took the stand.
1: What time were you made aware that there was a corpse in the cellar of your boarding house?
6: Around nine or 10
2: o'clock in the morning. My wife Mary told me something about it. By the time I arrived, the police were already there.
1: Can you name all of your previous tenants?
2: Many of them, yes, but there has been a lot of them. We rent out almost every room each night, as well as the attic. So there can be a great number of people at any given time.
1: Did you keep the cellar locked at all times?
2: There was a lock, but I don't think it was ever used. I haven't used the cellar myself in about two months. The only other person who would have used its access was a tenant who left more than two and a half years ago. And how do you think the body went undiscovered for so long? Well, I don't recall the cellar ever being cleared out before this.
1: But you never noticed anything odd in the cellar
2: prior to May 9th? Well, about six months ago, around Christmas, I went into the cellar and found a bone. It had some flesh on it, but I thought it was a sheep's bone. I showed it to my wife in the kitchen, who complained about the servant girl wasting a perfectly good half a leg of mutton. What can I say? I'm not a judge of human bones. I threw it back in the cellar. Who has regular access to the house? My brothers and maybe one of the workmen. But we always keep the gate locked.
4: Zivarin seemed to have a change of heart. He was now contradicting his earlier theory that someone simply wandered drunkenly into the cellar when the gate was left unlocked. Nobody however appeared to mind.
6: Dr. Davis took the stand next and reiterated his findings. The body's advanced state of decay made it difficult to determine either the cause of death or how long the victim had been dead, which, unfortunately, was the entire point of the trial.
4: After Dr. Davis, Sarah Carpenter, the family's maid, was called to the stand.
1: How long had you been working for the Bastendorfs, Miss Carpenter?
0: Almost five months, sir. I lived off the back of the kitchen.
1: Did you notice anything odd relating to this case?
0: Well, yes. I found a bone in the cellar about... a fortnight prior. I took it to my mistress, Mrs. Mary. I told her that it was part of a foot. She told me that it was from a wild boar they had eaten.
1: Did you find anything else in the cellar?
0: I found another bone about the size of my finger. And... some rags. But I just threw the bone away and I burnt the rags.
1: Would you say the first bone you found was definitively human?
0: I was sure of it. I was sure that it was a human leg.
4: Sarah's testimony was damning. If the young maid was so certain about the bone's humanity, surely Mary Bastendorf should have been as well. Unfortunately, there was enough reasonable doubt to keep from proving anything.
6: When the trial came to a close without resolve, Inspector Hagen had to once again try something new. This time, investigating local businesses, He thought that maybe he'd find someone in London that noticed a disappearance. And as it turned out,
4: he was right. Two years earlier, an elderly woman had gone to a local dentist's office to get fitted for dentures. But the dentist told Hagen that she never returned for further appointments. Hagen asked for the casts of the woman's teeth. Luckily for him, the dentist still had them, and the casts were sent to the mortuary for examination.
6: As they were getting tested... A surprise visitor showed up at Scotland Yard. His name was... Edward
2: Hacker. The woman in the cellar you're looking for is my sister. I haven't heard from her in two years. Her name's Matilda. Matilda Hacker?
6: There was an eccentricity about the man. But before Inspector Hagen could decide whether his eccentricity carried dishonesty with it, Hagen's assistant interrupted.
1: Sorry, Inspector Hagen... The results came back from the casts of the
4: victim's teeth. Yes? And? They're an exact match. Coming up, the victim's identity is finally revealed, but she doesn't have just one.
6: And now, back to the story.
4: In May 1879, the body of a woman was discovered in the coal cellar of a boarding house in Victoria, London. The woman, who was dressed in silk and jewels, was unidentified for weeks. Now, a strange man walked into Scotland Yard insisting that the body belonged to his sister, Matilda Hacker, who he had not heard from in about two years.
6: The man lived in Kentish Town, less than a mile north of Euston Square. He was asked to identify the body at St. Pancras Mortuary.
5: Two years is a long time to not hear from your sister.
2: Yes. Well, you didn't know her. Are you ready? Yes. That's her. You're sure? Yes. That's her hair. What's left of it, at least. The auburn curls. And those are her clothes, too. She liked to dress like she was still Sixteen. You are sure? I am. Would there be any items she held dear that you can remember? Um, a gold watch? Made in Canterbury, where we grew up.
6: Only hours after Edward Hacker identified his sister, the news leaked and journalists joined the crowds at 4 Euston Square. The press had dug up a bombshell of information about Matilda Hacker that the police didn't know yet. Matilda Hacker had been a tenant at 4 Euston Square.
0: Do you have anything to say for yourself? Let us live in peace! Why weren't you able to identify a woman who lived in your house?
4: Meanwhile, Inspector Hagen discovered a gold watch in a pawn shop in St. Pancras. The watch was engraved by its maker, Mr. Warren of Canterbury, Kent, the town where Matilda Hacker was raised.
6: Hagen followed the lead to Canterbury, He brought with him the watch and a few Auburn ringlets of hair to show to Superintendent Davis of the Canterbury
4: Police. Davis confirmed the items belonged to Matilda Hacker. He knew her well and described her as a renowned eccentric in Canterbury, one who was in her mid-sixties and hyper-prone to mood swings.
6: Matilda's father had gained his wealth after the Napoleonic Wars as a builder and a landlord. Upon his death, Matilda and her sister Amelia inherited a large house on Wincheap Street in Canterbury. Due to their dress and mannerisms, they came to be known as the Wincheap Dolls, and one was often mistaken for the other.
4: Well, the sisters were considered highly eligible by the men of Canterbury in their youth, but neither married. They lived happily on their inheritance and income made by renting out rooms in their properties.
6: Perhaps their so-called eccentricities were a defense mechanism, a means of warding off the men who, if they married, would control their fortunes.
4: They did seem to be extremely happy with their lifestyle. The sisters spent their summers at the beach playing cricket, dressing in extravagant costumes and parading around the local grounds, receiving mixed attention wherever they went, especially from the local children.
6: As for companionship, the sisters rented men like they were rooms in one of their houses, temporarily and as they pleased.
4: When her sister, Amelia, passed away in 1871, Matilda Hacker's behavior became even more erratic. She refused to pay her taxes until summoned to court, and even then, she gave the
6: authorities hell. It was clear that alone, Matilda Hacker was a bad landlady. She neglected upkeep and ignored claims from angry tenants, even when the orders came from the court.
4: More and more cases built up against Matilda, as they did, Her dress became more unusual, keeping only to blue satin, silk stockings, high heels, straw hats, and feathers. Her hair was always worn in small ringlets so that she looked like a young girl from behind.
6: Matilda's brother Edward tried to help her manage her properties and make amends with those that she wronged. But over time, their relationship became strained. By 1875, Edward was only in the habit of seeing his sister every three to four months.
4: With her brother more distant, Matilda found a new way of avoiding accountability. By the end of 1875, Matilda Hacker was assuming the identity of another woman.
6: She moved to London, to a boarding house in Russell Square, and began introducing herself as Miss Bell, Though a landlady might typically ask for identification from a new tenant, Matilda Hacker made it explicitly clear that she had the money to pay for a room. No questions were asked.
4: It wasn't until Superintendent Davis of the Canterbury Police showed up at the boarding house in Russell Square and spoke to the owner, Mrs. Bridges, that the true identity of Miss Bell was revealed.
2: Evening, ma'am. Are you the owner of this
4: property? I'm looking for a woman staying here by the name of Matilda Hacker.
0: I am the owner, but there's no one here by that name.
4: Maybe another name? She might keep her hair in curls, have an affinity for silks and the finer things. An older woman?
0: And what's your business with this woman?
4: I'm here to collect her debts.
0: I don't want any trouble. There's a woman here who matches that description, but she calls herself Miss Bell. I can get her if you'd like.
4: No need. I can fetch her myself. Just point me in her direction. Matilda Hacker had been discovered and was subsequently outraged. When she saw the man, she hurled slurs at the superintendent. She became so violent, in fact, that the superintendent decided that any attempt at reasoning was futile. Instead, he chose to secure the payment by taking a few of her belongings, among them a gold watch and chain.
6: Matilda Hacker chased after the superintendent for her things. She chased him so far that she ended up back in Canterbury. She paid the full amount she owed and demanded her items be returned to her. Which they were.
4: She wasn't one to give up on vengeance, though. Once her things were safely in her possession, Matilda Hacker marched to the county court office and took out a summons against Mr. Davis for the
6: theft of her property. She eventually dropped the case because her presence in Canterbury had alerted her other creditors. Matilda fled the area again and took on a new pseudonym. By the end of 1876, she was living in Chelsea near Dorset Square under the name Miss Sycamore.
4: Upon her reinvention, she began adding to her repertoire of charms, practicing astrology and divination with the help of a popular book at the time, the Book of Dreams. She offered her customers fireside readings and conversation.
6: By the time she moved again in the summer of 1877, Matilda was even more versed in the book of dreams. And as such, she became quite popular with the four children who lived in her new home, 4 Houston Square. She now went by the name Miss Hewish.
4: 4 Houston Square was Matilda Hacker's home for three weeks before it became her last known sighting and her burial site.
6: Matilda Hacker had enemies and admirers wherever she went. That much was clear. What was unclear was who killed her and why. Then in May of 1879, a key figure was reintroduced into the case. After returning from Canterbury, Inspector Hagen revisited Mr. Parkinson, the owner of the pawn shop, where the watch was found.
4: Hagen had remembered Mr. Parkinson saying that it was a young woman who had sold him the watch. Hagen arranged a lineup of suspects for Mr. Parkinson.
5: Does anyone here look like the person that
1: sold you that watch, Mr. Parkinson? Yes, it was her. Are you sure? I'd swear to it. That's the woman who sold me the watch.
4: The woman he was pointing to was none other than the former maid of 4 Euston Square, Hannah Dobbs.
5: What name did she
1: give you when she sold it? Rosina. Rosina Bastendorf.
4: Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of The Mystery at 4 Houston Square. As Hannah Dobbs is put on trial for the murder of Matilda Hacker. The truth to what was actually happening behind the closed doors of 4 Houston Square comes to light. And it's much more than murder.
6: You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParkCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts.
4: Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
6: And... Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
4: We'll see you next time.
6: Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders
4: True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Connor Sampson and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Kathleen Nielsen, and Jack Shulruff.